Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Hey, welcome to Vox Conversations. I am not Ezra Klein. Instead, I'm Sean ramos I host Vox's daily news podcast, Today Explained. I hope you're a listener. If not, now is the time. We are starting something new here, building on the rich legacy left by the last five years of Ezra Klein's conversations in this feed. Each week, we're pairing one amazing guest host with some of the brightest thinkers of our age to go deep on one topic, with topics ranging from politics and democracy to pop culture that defines us. We'll deliver something new and impactful each week, a conversation you won't want to miss, starting this week with my friend Sam Sanders, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute. He's going to be speaking with Olivia Nuzzi, Washington correspondent from New York Magazine, about, well, what else? Here's Sam. Hey, y'all. I am really excited to be in this podcast feed and to interview my guest, Olivia Nuzzi. So Olivia is Washington correspondent for New York Magazine. And for the last several years, she has been one of the most well-sourced reporters covering Trump world. Rudy Giuliani sends her angry texts in the middle of the night. And there's this piece Olivia wrote early in the Trump presidency where she meets Kellyanne Conway at a restaurant And Kellyanne gets so comfortable with her, she literally eats off Olivia's plate. And over the last several years, Olivia has done so much more than just reveal the quirks of the key players in this White House. You know, she's fed so many lies all the time from her sources, and she's managed yet to reveal a lot of the truth about who these folks in Trump world are, how they behave, and what it means for our democracy, which right now seems pretty fragile. So as this episode of the Trump White House comes to a close with a most spectacular season finale, there is honestly no better reporter to talk with right now. All right, here is my conversation with Olivia Nuzzi. Enjoy. All right, Olivia, first question for you. Where were you on the 6th of January as the insurrection on the Capitol took place? when Vanilla Isis came to town? <laughs> I I was in Washington. I was not at the Capitol. It was actually my birthday, and I thought I was going to be celebrating my birthday. And obviously, that is uh, not what ended up happening. Um, and I, you know, I spent my yeah. day watching, like everyone else, watching it unfurl and just glued to my phone, talking to people who were there, talking to sources in the Capitol, on lockdown, in the White House, and just absorbing it and I'm still absorbing it now. You know, I was thinking in advance of this interview, you know, you, out of all the White House press corps, you have been 
known for the incredible access you get. I'm still thinking about Rudy Giuliani calling you all the time, sometimes by accident. I still recall that profile you had at Kellyanne Conway where she literally ate off of your plate. And so, like, I'm wondering, in the aftermath of the Capitol insurrection, were those sources, anonymous and named, were they calling you or were they just tight-lipped? I mean, I was having to call them. And, and one of the problems recently has been since election night, so many people who are normally around the president have literally physically not been around him. And so oh, wow. the group of people who you... Were they kicked out or did they leave out of their own like volition? Leaving or, or not even leaving formally. I mean, obviously there have been resignations since Wednesday, but people have been just not showing up to work. Uh, have been avoiding the president, not wanting to deal with him, not wanting to <laughs> not wanting to get into arguments with him. And also, they no longer have the self-serving reason to be there, which is to angle for proximity to power. The, the power is gone. He's leaving mm. in a couple of days. And so wow. what you ordinarily yeah. would be able to tolerate if you were the type of person who worked for Donald Trump, you know, that has changed. It's no longer worth it to be like verbally abused or deal with all sorts of insane knife fighting from your colleagues because it's not mm. like you're going to get a better gig at the end of it, right? You're not going to come out um, <laughs> yeah. with a better office. So the group of people who you can rely on for insight into what he's saying, what he's thinking, has just gotten smaller. As is usually the case when that group tightens, it's like a lot of the worst most insane people like obviously we're grading these people on, on uh, in, you know in Trump world and their own special uh, you know their own special way that you you grade how bad they are but we're talking about like the Rudy Giuliani's and and people that you haven't heard of who are lifers I think the New York Times Annie Carney reported that internally they're starting to know them as dead enders um, wow it's a much different group of people than like the first year of the Trump White House were like all day long left and right you had people from like the RNC leaking to reporters yeah. constantly and like you know fighting with each other you have a a lot of loyalists, it's harder to feel like you're getting the truth or like you're able to judge one source against the other. Like it's just a, a pretty skeleton crew over there. Wow. So then what were they saying in the aftermath of the insurrection? You know, a, a lot of people resigned, um, not as many as you would think, given what happened and given that also just cynically, if you're thinking about this, it's like, Okay, there are White House staffers who were just there because they've been there this long. There's no point in resigning anyway, but they're not really showing up to work. They don't want to be there. You know, this was also an excuse, an opportunity for them. It was one last chance for them to leave and say that they did so for any kind of principled reason. You know, that's like the cynical hmm. view of it. And mm -hmm. so it's shocking that more people didn't resign, I think. But, you know, I was hearing that we're all ashamed, you know, this This isn't who we are. I spoke to one senior administration official who I think was the most honest of everyone that I talked to who's still inside, who told me everything that for years he'd been able to kind of dismiss as Trump derangement syndrome, as hyperbole, oh, Trump's not a fascist, he's not a wannabe dictator. Now, it's bared out that he is those things and he has nothing left to mm. say now. And he realizes that like, eh, it was true. It wasn't just people flipping out and, you know, fear mongering about Donald Trump, the terrible, it, it was true. 
But that said, that person's still in his job. You know, he was literally driving wow. to work on when I talked to him, I think on it was on wow. Friday. For you, someone who's covered the Trump White House, I believe since the start, you know, to see this be the end of it, was the insurrection a surprise for you or the most logical culmination? I mean, in some sense, it was both. They were literally planning this out in the open. I spoke to supporters of the president who talked openly for months and months about how they feared and they were prepping for a civil war. When I would hear that type of stuff from the president's supporters, it was always from people who didn't really seem, who were older, who just didn't seem likely to like mobilize in that way. You know, they might come to a Trump rally the way that they would go to like a Billy Joel concert. Um, but, it, but it didn't seem like, you know, Karen from New Hampshire, literally one of the people I'm referring to, a volunteer, like she was at risk of actually becoming deluded enough to think that she could stop the vote being certified and travel to Washington to try and do it in a violent way. And yet you see these pictures and there are like grandmas in there with these guys with yeah. zip ties and full body armor. In some ways, it's like so. Can I curse on this? It's so fucking obvious, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So fucking obvious. You know, they've been using the language of war and calling for people's heads. And the president has endorsed violence since 2015, since he was first Mm -hmm. running. And so, in some ways, it's totally like the logical conclusion of the last five and a half years. But in other ways, you know, I, yeah. I was surprised to see so much of like the online conversation with the president's supporters. So much of it seems like he knows he knows it's bullshit. And so surely these people, some of them have to know it's bullshit too. And to see like the number of people who not only didn't know it was bullshit, but like believed it enough to commit crimes while taping themselves <laughs> and posted online. Like it still was astonishing to see, even if it was like totally predictable in a lot of ways. You know, I was thinking about, cause what was so weird to me was how, you know, some of those folks that showed up at the Capitol last Wednesday, they were ready. They had the zip ties, they had their guns, they were wearing their camo, but a lot of them looked like tourists. And you know what it felt like to me, Olivia? It felt like an old school lynch mob. A lynch mob is a really big crowd, but not everyone comes there to lynch. Most of them don't come there to do the lynching. They just come to watch the crazies are going to do it. And that's almost even more, that gives me even more despair than like knowing that all of them were the crazy vigilantes. Knowing that a lot of those folks that were there will go home to their quiet lives and be nice grandmas again. That's almost chilling. More chilling than if they were all just murderers. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you see it at the Trump rallies. I mean, beginning, again, back in 2015, when someone, let's say there's a protester at a Trump rally. I mean, first of all, Trump rallies start with a loud, with someone coming over the loudspeaker, this male voice, and I'm paraphrasing, but the announcement is like, if there is a protester, you are to surround them and chant USA, USA, USA oh until and, and until they are removed. It is about what to do as a group in response to protest. 
And mm. you would see at these rallies when a protester would start demonstrating or if a fight would break out, you could people get like hyped and turn to watch it. Or you even see, you know, when the president directs his focus at the press pen and they all turn to boo, a lot of the times they're laughing. You know, they seem to be mm-hmm. in on the joke. But a lot of times you get like really menacing, really frightening, hissing and, and screaming yeah. at you, right? And it's yeah. kind of like, wait. And are, that's the thing. It's like you never know. Right. You never know. And it's like, are the people who are laughing like how quickly could they turn to be hissing and scowling and screaming too? You don't know. And the the people in groups are terrifying. And when I was watching them like jump the barriers or break the windows at first, I just was thinking like, like how many of these people separated from this group would do this? The way that they were egging each other on and you could see it swell from chanting and screaming and USA, USA to someone beating a police officer with an American flag. Yeah. It's like in the blink of an eye, the group think takes over and they're all the vigilantes. And they're just kidding. They're just kidding. They're just kidding until they're not. And that could happen in a split second, especially when these crowds are so large and just, just outraged. I wonder for you if this is the finale of the Trump show, at least for now. What is, like, the big takeaway for you after four years, more than four years of covering this stuff? Like, what is the last line of the last paragraph of your last piece about the Trump show? I mean, at the time that you and I are talking, we've still got a couple days left. And I I hesitate to say that we've seen the end of it because I just don't think that we're going to know what the end is until he is at Mar-a-Lago <laughs> or wherever it is yeah. that he's going. Or in Scotland. I don't know where that man is going. Wherever the hell he's going. I don't know what the final line is. I mean, the thing that's that I keep coming back to, the self-centeredness of the people around him, not just him, but really, I mean, that's obvious, right? And it's obviously you'd have to guess that the people around him were like that as well. <sighs> I just keep thinking about how so many of my conversations are like how the people around him, they talk about how they're feeling or they talk Mm. about how they're relating to each other or when they talk about what they're going to do next or if they talk about being ashamed or embarrassed or even if they have some like attachment to reality with what happened on Wednesday or they know that they were, you know, part of it. It still just feels Mm -hmm. like it's all viewed within, you know, what does this mean for me? And that's how he views it too, right? Like, what does this mean for me? I just feel like the lack of empathy and the desensitizing, it's it's all been like building, building and building up until this point. And I keep going back to with him, like it started out when he first ran in, in 2015. Everyone who I've ever talked to from that campaign, first of all, nobody, including Donald Trump, thought that he was gonna win. But he wasn't even supposed to really be running in a serious way. He wanted to run mm. to get everybody who said that he was never going to do it to shut up. He mm. wanted to just poll in a respectably enough that he could say, oh, I would have won if I had stayed in. But I didn't. I just wanted to go back to my show, The Apprentice, and make a lot of money. I didn't actually want to do that job. But I would have won. And then NBC denounces him. 
He doesn't have a show to go back to. He's stuck in the race and he wins. And it's like the whole thing has been this like joke being forced, just forced on everybody, (laughs) forced on, forced on him, forced on everybody and turned into like the sickest, most just fucked up version of itself that it could possibly be. I was talking to a friend for his podcast, a whole episode about one of the anniversaries of the Obama tan suit scandal. And ever since that episode, and honestly, the entire Trump administration and the campaign, Donald Trump has been an exercise in what a certain type of rich white guy can get away with that nobody else can. And I think aside from partisanship, I think this is not a political judgment. I just think if you look at the things that that man has done the last five years, no other person could do that but a rich white guy. A woman couldn't do it. A black person couldn't do it. A poor person couldn't do it. A person without connection could not do it. And I wonder if we realize at the end of the Trump show or as we near the end of the Trump show how real that is and how that hasn't changed in the last several decades. And I think like Obama lulled a lot of us into this sense of equality and fairness that still does not exist. It just doesn't exist. And there's certain types of folks that can do whatever the hell they want. And usually it's the rich ones and the white ones and the men. And that's my biggest takeaway. (laughs) Yeah, but that's what I mean with the self-centeredness. Like what people are willing to tolerate, white people, Mm Oh, I like his, you know, his tax policy or what he's done with the Supreme Court or with the courts more generally. It was still and is still in certain circles socially acceptable to say that you are willing to trade that for all of this pain and just this devaluing of human life across the board. I mean, and of your neighbors, of your neighbors. Yeah. Not that the Trump administration was successful in implementing a policy agenda, right? But when you think about the policies that they did implement or the items on the agenda, you know, what was it all about? Was there a through line? Because he doesn't have an ideology, right? His ideology is just whatever yeah. works for him at that moment himself, right? Selfishness. Yeah. But if you really think about it, immigration, taxes, the courts, it's all about devaluing certain human life and inflating the value of others. Mm. I've thought for a long time, and I've said for a long time about how he doesn't have a belief system, right? He just uh. believes, he just gives a shit about himself. He doesn't care about anything else. But that is a belief system. Even if he's his own God, it's still a religion. And it still has implications for everybody else, right? So yeah, it's not as if I'm like looking at Wednesday and, and having like a, oh, I, you know, I need to have a reckoning with how I thought about him. I, you know, it's always been clear to me who he is and what he does and what his supporters believe. Right. But I'm still unable to, not that I'm unable to believe it, but it, it's just still just like knocks me on my ass to picture what we saw Wednesday. Yeah. Even if it was totally utterly believable. You're still like, well, we don't do that. 
America doesn't do that. And it's like, oh, no, 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 we do. We do. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, and I hated that shit all day, you know, in the aftermath Wednesday. And a lot of people were making this point, but this is not who we are. This is, I think Joe Biden said something to that effect. Oh, yeah. Right. It's like, it's, ex- it's not. Yeah. When? Since when is it not who we it's are? It's exactly who we are. When you got a noose in front of the Capitol, that's history. The Confederate flag, that's history. This is what we, they, people been doing this, you know, it's, it's a continuation. Yeah. All right, time for a quick break. After that, Olivia and I are going to talk about what it's been like to cover this White House. And she has some very surprising things to say about using anonymous sources. Stay with us. I want to ask about the art of being a journalist covering the Trump White House. It's seemed to be an administration full of anonymous sources, like more than usual. And you've relied on them a lot in your reporting. And a lot of times they call you to trash Trump. And you've talked to powerful, prominent, wealthy, anonymous Republicans who have said all kinds of things about him. Was there a through line with what those anonymous voices said, looking back? I mean, everybody around Trump, even people who really like him, even people who like are not embarrassed by their association with him, even people for whom it was not a struggle to decide to support him or to work for him. Everybody's always pretty clear-eyed about a couple of like fundamental facts about him. He's kind of a fucking idiot and he's really crazy (laughs) and he's really selfish. Wow. And he has no attention span and it's very difficult to talk to him. Like, everyone is pretty much in agreement about that. Wow. Like, even people who really wow. like him and people who are, you know, proudly out there supporting him and being a part of all of this. And so, you know, the denials of, of our, like, shared reality were rampant and on all sorts of things. But, like, I never really heard people deny those things about him. Wow. Wow. You're not going to get, I'm sure if if there were a briefing, although like, I don't know when they're going to have one again or if ever, uh, but if there were a briefing with like Kaylee McEnany. (laughs) If I were them, I would not have another briefing. (laughs) (laughs) But if you raised your hand, you were like, Kaylee, like, you know, is the president an idiot? And like, does he have the attention span of a gnat? She's not going to be like, well, you're, yes, that's true. I'd say that's fair. Right. But that's different than like (laughs) going to somebody's office in there and, and, talking to them, you know, people always, even when they are in the middle, usually often when they're in the middle of defending him, they'll say, well, you, you know, you know how it is to talk to him or, you know, what it's like, or, you know, and that is, that's been consistent for four years. You know, in one of the pieces where you're talking to an anonymous GOP source, you get really candid and I really appreciate it. And it's stuck with me since I read it. You kind of question whether this practice of anonymous sourcing in the GOP is right or even more moral. And he wrote this graph that I still think about. Can I read it to you? You wrote, my own self-serving justification for granting anonymity to Republicans connected to or able to provide insight into this White House is simple. If the choice is between being lied to on the record or told the truth on background, I will choose the truth every time. Even though every time I choose the anonymous truth, I make it easier for this system of secrecy to continue. Actually, that's too generous. It's more truthful to say I'm part of a system that enables political leaders to have it both ways. 
to indulge in ugliness and irresponsibility and to distance themselves from their own actions. The press provides the alibi as it prosecutes the case. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, now more than ever. It's a pretty recent piece, so I, I definitely still feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, there is an inherent grossness to this type of reporting. It's not as though I haven't tried very hard to get people on the record, and often I do, but I have relied on anonymous sources, just as the New York Times has relied on anonymous sources, the Washington Post, other magazines, cable networks. And it's not as though this practice is new. I mean, I talk about that a lot in this in that piece that you're referencing. And I, I didn't cover previous White Houses. This is my first one. So I don't have a direct comparison that I can make like, oh, you know, it was frequent in this administration, but it died down a bit in this one. And it's really back up during Trump. Like, I don't know. I, can, I only judge can judge by what I read, you know, those previous administrations. But yeah, there's something icky about the whole transaction. Mm. And it's always a struggle for me and you know, I'm sure for other reporters. But I mean, for me, it's it's been paralyzing at times during this administration where I feel like you just have to sift through so much bullshit. People who are able to get away with murder because they're never their names are never attached to anything and they're able to lie and say whatever they want you know I, I didn't mean to imply that when people talk to you anonymously they always tell you the truth i mean i feel like half of my time covering trump is spent sifting through what people have to say when mm. their names aren't attached to it and there's no accountability and you know, trying to figure out who I trust and whose judgment I trust and whose version of events I can judge against another source's version of events. I mean, it's just like any reporting exercise requires like double the time <laughs> to sift through all of the lies yeah. and it's exhausting. Yeah. But it's also been a public service at some times, not, not, I'm not talking about like my own reporting, but when we think about what we know of what has gone on in that White House, the things that didn't happen before our very eyes in a briefing room or in the Rose Garden, so much of it came from anonymous accounts reported by the media. And so it's just been this constant back and forth where it's like this transaction is it just it feels bad, right? Like even yeah, when you're getting yeah. good information, you're getting something that you know is useful or interesting or a good story in the most cynical way, it feels bad. But at the same time, you are trying your best to put together the closest possible thing to the truth about what's happening in there. And in my case, you know, try and be transparent about the process, but I'm always conflicted about it. When I'm in the middle of yeah. it, immediately after it, <laughs> months after it, years after oh, it, like I'm constantly yeah. conflicted about. How do you make peace with it? How do you set your mind at ease? I don't. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping to get there at some point. I just, I haven't yet. Yeah. You know, you are one of the few White House reporters that I think will talk candidly about this dilemma. Not a lot of folks would doing the same job you do. Why do you think that is? I think that, I mean, first of all, I work for a magazine, New York Magazine. I hope you subscribe if you're listening to this. Um, but I, I, you know, I work for a magazine. <laughs> I happen to think it's the best magazine out there, not to keep plugging away for it. But like what people expect of me working for a magazine, I have different 
responsibilities and there are different standards for me as a print journalist who is my job is to try and just describe this as truthfully as humanly possible and from 10,000 feet not to pretend to be this you know objective robot and it's different there are different demands on journalists who work at newspapers and who work at tv networks and i understand you know when you have the president of the united states calling you a traitor and calling you the enemy of the people and his supporters you know half the country almost half the country thinks that it's very think that i understand why people feel like if you give an inch it will be used against you and if you admit mm. that there's bias in the news media or that you feel conflicted about what you do or that you second guess yourself on something that it will work against you because look what happens if NBC news let's say if they issue a correction on a story, they get something wrong. It's not as though the Trump administration's like, thank you so much for doing that. We appreciate it. <laughs> They're like, fuck mm. you guys, you're fake news. Mm-hmm. Look at this. Yeah. They they issued a correction. They lied. But you know, I have found anecdotally that when I'm talking to people who think that I am fake news and they're like, do you work for the liberal media? And I'm like, yeah, like definitely. This is it's probably to you a super liberal magazine. Like, but I hope you talk to me anyway. Like, here's what I think. Normally that opens up the conversation, but I'm also, I'm also aware that like I do that as a white girl who is not on site viewed with suspicion by these people, right? Mm. Viewed with animosity by these people. And so the simplest answer is that I work for a publication where there's no expectation that I present as an objective yeah. robotic yeah. scribe. But And I like it that way. <laughs> it's better that way. <laughs> I also think it just and I don't mean for this in any way to sound like I'm like patting myself on the back at all. Like it can be really scary to admit that maybe you didn't do something the right way or that like Mm. you should rethink how you're doing the thing that you do professionally. I understand why people don't want to like navel gaze and talk about what they may have gotten wrong because it invites even more criticism. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's useful to do it. And I don't know. It helps me feel like I'm figuring out how to do it better yeah. As they go and along. it's refreshing. It's refreshing to hear, you know, someone doing this work reflect on it because it's important and vital work and we need to get it right. So this kind of stuff is good and it helps all of us. All right, time for one more break. When we come back, what comes next for reporters covering the White House and for the grand old party itself? If the Biden administration offers somewhat of a clean slate or a chance for a newish start or a reset of some sorts, what do you hope the biggest lesson the White House press corps takes into this new administration? Or what do you think is the one thing they really got a course correct? Well, I mean, it's hard to say because, again, this was the first White House that I covered. I guess I don't know what habits and traditions that turned out to like not be great during the Trump era. Yeah. I think for me, the biggest one was letting Trump run the news day. You know, for a good two years of the administration, uh, Donald Trump's Twitter feed 
was the editor-in-chief of every newspaper, every magazine, and every news radio station. And I remember those meetings where the agenda setting for the day and what stories we'd all cover was set by his tweets. And I think what I hope for is a certain kind of reset where journalists trust themselves enough to set their own agendas for coverage and to trust their instincts that they've honed over time to know what stories are worth covering and what stories aren't. That's what I really hope we get back to. Because for a while, it felt like Donald Trump was everyone's editor. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because you have, with Donald Trump, because his personality determined the policy and determined personnel. And the question is, like, what is he thinking? And, you know, what does he care about? What does he want to do? And he's shouting it from, like, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. every morning. I, You know, the temptation to focus on that was very real. And you're right, it did dictate a lot of the coverage. But it's looking back, it's hard to know. I could see if we had the chance to start over and do it again, the same exact patterns emerging where, you know, he tweets and it derails infrastructure week or whatever plans the administration had. And we all scramble to react to it. And Mm -hmm. he gets exactly what he wants. In a lot of ways, I see what the problems were, but like, I don't see faced with a similar situation. How would we do it different? How we would deal with it differently, even if we know, you know, what we, what was wrong, um, how we would make it right. And obviously Joe Biden is not Donald Trump in a, in a million ways. And we're not going to be, I assume, facing the same situation where he's like, Mm -hmm. you know, tweeting angrily and, and fucking up everything that he's trying to do but so i think it's a good thing that a lot of people talked about how it was or a lot of like media critics were always talking about how oh like it looks like the the press is like allowing trump to turn them into the enemy and like that he the press is feeding into the us versus them thing that that trump is the dynamic that trump is trying to create and even though that was true a lot of the time I think that tended to like yield pretty good results. It, it tended mm. to reveal things about Trump, or you know, reveal him in testy exchanges, or lead to tough coverage and leaks and things that just resulted in more transparency. And so, I, it's not that I hope that like Joe Biden and the press hate each other, although most politicians don't like the press. But I do hope that like we don't all breathe a sigh of relief in the press together and say like now we're going to be friends with the person that we're covering and i hope that whenever lessons were learned or are still being learned in the trump era about not always believing the government story on things questioning everything mm-hmm. i mean we had to with trump for obvious reasons because they're constantly lying about absolutely everything but i i hope that that skepticism remains healthy in the press corps. And in hindsight, I wish some of that skepticism had been applied during the eight years of Obama's administration because there was a lot of stuff that folks just missed because he was so charming. You know what I'm saying? He was charming. Yeah, no, I I do. (laughs) Yeah, and I think think that's good that that has, I mean, it it came at quite the cost (laughs) with Trump. Um, (laughs) You don't say. Right, like, but... I, I do think that that's good, and I, I hope it continues. But Me too. 
I want to let you go before we talk for an hour because it's – I just want you I, – like, I want for you like a week of just sleep and rest. I feel like you've been grinding for the last few years, particularly the last few weeks. I feel like whenever I see you on Instagram, you're here, you're there, you're everywhere. So I don't want to keep you late. But I do want to ask you before I let you go, what you think happens next for the GOP itself, for the party, for Republicans? There's so many questions about how long Trumpism – as a political style will linger on in that party. You know, so even if Trump goes away, even if they convict him of impeachment in the Senate and he can't run for office again, Trumpism, you know, as a way to do politics is around. How long do you think that is with the GOP? I don't think it's going away. I don't think that Trump created it. I think that Trump activated it. The Mm. people who became rabid Trump supporters It's not as though they just acquired their capacity to believe the things that he had them believe or that he encouraged them to believe or that he promoted on June 16th, 2015. They Mm. had that capacity before that. Maybe they believed in birtherism. Maybe it predates that. Maybe it predates the Tea Party, the racist response to Obama's election. Maybe it dates back to Newt Gingrich. Maybe it dates back to Barry Goldwater. But he did not create those people who descended on the Capitol. You know, he activated them. And Mm. I don't think maybe they will run off and lie dormant for a while. I doubt it. But I don't think that they go away. And, you know, I saw... I think it was Mark Salter, who's a, a longtime Republican operative. He said something about Hawley, the other Josh Hawley, the other day about how Hawley had his career was over. He'd ruined his career, and I was over. just thinking, you know, maybe the the type of Republican who Hawley was initially casting himself as, or the the lane that he initially seemed to be trying to run in for 2024, maybe he's shut that off with you know, the greatest political self-immolation in recent memory with what he did. But there is a, a whole population of people who are eager, clearly, for a politician like Josh Hawley, like what he's become. And I don't yeah. think that that just goes away because Trump is tamed by a second impeachment or by the 25th Amendment or by, you know, four years on the sidelines. Yeah. What do you think happens to all the anonymous Republicans? Do they stop being anonymous? Do they just come out and say everything once he's gone? Or does that practice just linger? I think that that lingers. I think that people are going to continue to, if not fear Trump, then fear his base. And they're going to continue to want to have it both ways. I mean, it remains possible for Republicans to say something to their fellow elite lawmakers and donors and members of the establishment class and then to say something very different to people in other areas in the country or from different socioeconomic class or who believe more extreme things. I don't think that we have to like look very far in our past to see examples of people getting away with murder, literally getting away with war crimes, mm. getting away with mm. illegal wars and being welcomed on cable television, being welcomed in polite society. And so I'm fairly pessimistic about what happens to those who enabled this and benefited from it. And I think that the party is going to be fractured, 
But at the end of the day, I think we saw in 2016 and we saw for the four years following that election that it is true, the old saying, that Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. Yeah, and I don't see any – I don't see a widespread migration of disgruntled Republicans to the Democratic Party. That ain't going to happen. I just don't see that happening, you know? I think that like – yeah, people come home. People eventually come home. And if the Republican Party is their home, they're going to stay at their home. It will be interesting to see, and I look forward to reading whatever you write about the next four years of God knows what. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a threat. <laughs> I think it's going to be fine. Everything's going to be great, Olivia. It's going to be wonderful. Please tell me you have a vacation plan soon, though. Like, you, you, you have to get some time off, right? Will you? I, you know, I love the impression that you and, and other people have that I'm, like, super busy I, I want to keep that up, but I, 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 I am not always as busy as you are implying right now. I spend a lot of time self-loathing in between my bursts of productivity. <laughs> uh, just like the rest of us. They're, they're just like us, you guys. <laughs> well, Olivia, this was such a treat. I really enjoyed it. I have enjoyed just like your voice covering this White House the last four years has just been beautiful to watch and to read and to behold. And I am anxiously awaiting every piece. So I look forward to the next one. Thank you so much. That's so sweet of you to say. I can't say that I um, enjoy talking about this, but I do always enjoy talking to you and I appreciate your time. (laughs) Of course. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Sean again. Thank you for listening to Vox Conversations. If you like the show, let us know. If you don't like the show, also let us know. We want to hear your feedback since this is a new thing. We're especially curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. If you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, topics, whatever, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. That's voxconversations, all one word, smushed together at vox.com. And if you like the show, share it with your friends, rate and review, do everything you do. We'll have a lot more good stuff coming for you in the weeks ahead. Vox Conversations is produced by Zach Mack. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. The consulting editor is Allison McAdam. And Liz Kelly Nelson is Vox's editorial director of podcasts. Vox Conversations is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.